investing in equities, fixed, income instruments and or alternative asset classes involves a substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice as an advising representative with Gold Investment Management Limited, a firm registered as a portfolio manager and located in Edmonton, Alberta, this podcast does not provide individualized investment tax or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that is available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Joel Shackleton, Cam Pictures or Gold Investment Management have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Reform Millennials. Joel, how's it going this weekend? I had a fun, interesting weekend. First 18 holes on the course. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 83 with 11 three putts. <laughs> I was going to put the over under at 80 and a half and see what you said. So yeah, uh, give me the exact not, score. Not a good start to the year at all. Actually, it was devastating. However, I had a fun weekend. The Oilers finished off the the LA Kings. The annoying LA Kings, yeah. Another another big dub for the boys. Yeah, and you know what's been more surprising is the 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 two favorites in my opinion just got pushed out. This yeah, evening. we just we just kind of delayed our recording start because we had to watch the defending champions go down to the First time playoff team, Seattle Kraken, just crazy. Yeah. Some sea urchin just beat the Avalanche. It's <laughs> unbelievable to see Boston and the Avs fall. I am shocked. But yeah. as an well, Oiler fan. Well, I think when we, when we first t- started talking about playoff season and how obviously like this is, we're debating what the best time of the year is for sports fans against, you know, NFL start of the season or this time when you have baseball and and NFL draft and so like fantasy kind of kicks back up again then you got NHL and NBA and I know you and I were kind of talking about how outside of this is the first year for the NBA playoffs where the first round hasn't been inevitable because you had the the Milwaukee Bucks go down to the Miami Heat which was a 1v8 seed and that hasn't that was probably the biggest upset in the NBA in decades for sure or in a decade for sure because usually it's just, like I said before, like a cakewalk, like maybe a few. Charles Barkley likes to say a gentleman's sweep. So that's a five-game series. So you let the team have one win at home, and then you dust them back at, at your place to get through five games. But the yeah, usually it just it's like you don't even have to check in because you know what the semifinals matchups are going to be. And so, like again, there's probably like one instance of that you know, not being the case this year. But in the NHL, every year, you just never know. Like we just said, like the defending champions, like, I mean, again, to compare that to basketball, you look at Golden State versus Cleveland all those years, like you literally, you were safer to bet that matchup happening every single year in the finals than you were picking the field just because there was so much dominance and the parity just was not there. Whereas, and the luck factor, which I think you've probably talked about in the podcast before, how much luck is involved in 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 sports and how even like the betting markets kind of reflect that too where like returns on picking an underdog in hockey is not the same as it is in basketball or football um just because of the amount of luck that's involved in in a sport and the fact that 
even though you can have dominant players. So like Colorado's got Nathan McKinnon, Miko Rant, like, I mean, skill on skill wise, you look at that series with the Kraken and you're going to say on paper, like there's zero way that Colorado should be losing this just based off of looking at their skills, their underlying metrics, all that kind of stuff. But then you, you run into a hot, you got one, you you actually do have one player that can make a huge difference and that's a goaltender. And then talking about bounces and penalties and all that kind of stuff. It's just the amount of luck that's involved to to win. And, you know, you kind of saw that come to fruition today with the Florida Panthers beating Boston Bruins. Boston Bruins just set records for having the best or most amount of points in this regular season. They come back from down, being down 3-1. And then you have the Seattle Kraken taking down the defending Stanley Cup champions in seven games. So probably we were just saying maybe some good news for us Capital Region Oiler fans or across the country if you're listening to Oiler fans because – potentially maybe an easier matchup in the hopefully conference finals once we get past the the Vegas team but you know like I just said a lot of luck involved so we gotta keep hoping the buck bounces our way man if we get to the Stanley Cup finals which knock on wood could happen they're gonna be able to hear don't stop believing from Calgary <laughs> did you yeah, see that, was, that video yeah that was pretty cool scenes for sure holy moly that's one of the cooler shots videos that i've seen from with maybe with the exception of the argentinian win and the parade there i think that scene where you could hear across the city the moss pit singing yeah was special yeah it's it's there's really i think i've said it before for sure there's nothing like a live sporting event like the the experience and what comes along with fandom it's just such an amazing microcosm look at who we are as a society and how like we always talk about, you know, coming together or whatever. It's like sports is like truly one of the only things that are left that will actually unite people like of all (laughs) backgrounds and everything towards one thing. Cause there's definitely not too many people. I don't think asking which what's your political views. It's what's your view on Connor going down the wing and sniping this and everyone's saying yes. (laughs) That's all I want to see right now. But um, moving into markets, Cam, it was a, hot week that was a very busy one for me it i think at this point in earnings season we're now through about 55 percent of the s p having reported including also here in canada and the companies that have reported have come in it's coming quite substantially better than what analysts were expecting the beat rates are above most historical averages and Analysts are now bumping up their next quarter's guide. And that is a reversal of what we have been seeing in the past two quarters. And that's promising. And that explains largely why we're near six-month highs on the S&P 500 and, and the TSX. Now, with that said, the breadth of this, this thrust upwards is sadly very thin. And you'll probably hear this a lot if you're watching business TV, you're watching Bloomberg, BNN, whatever. And you'll hear about how narrow this this rally has been. And what does that mean? Well, I'll use the most important index as as my 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 example here, being the S and P 500, 500 companies, 500 largest companies in the United States. And if it's up six percent this year, as of Friday, five companies make up all 6% of that and more 
So about 120% of that return. So call it six and a half percent of that return is five companies, which is unbelievable. You have Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, NVIDIA, and then Google. And those five businesses make up for the entire return this year. While the other 493, well, let's say the seven largest companies, just to, to bring everything in, the rest of the 492 or 493 businesses make up a total combined loss this year. It's unbelievable to see this, the amount of, of work that these people are doing. It's almost as though you're kind of paying attention to, and there's like a, it's like Connor McDavid, if he were to have scored, call it this, if you're looking at the Calgary flame series from last year, <laughs> where Connor and Leon had like 24 points each, that's what it feels like right now with regards to public market investing right now. It feels as though these these seven companies, five or six or seven companies, are doing everything while everybody else is floundering and doing poorly. And it's concerning. When you don't see a lot of breadth, that is a problem. With all that said, though, those seven companies actually underperformed last year, too. You would be, I mean, if you were an investor last year and you were mad at your guy, you're probably being like, why weren't you invested in oil and gas? It's up. It's up. Well, those industrials, those railways, those oil and gas companies are all the businesses that are doing poorly this year from an absolute return basis. While the companies that did really poorly last year, Facebook being down darn near 75%, Apple being down 25 or so at its bottom, Google down 40, Amazon down 60, Microsoft down 35, 40. When you think about that, a lot of those companies have now returned and, and are nearing those or returning to those near highs. And I mean, that's where all that market cap gains coming from. You have a, a Microsoft that is, I mean, I think it's move after earnings was roughly 200 billion in market cap, 180 billion in market cap. And to, to give people some context there, that's like RBC, basically, in a matter of two days. They, their, their market cap went up an entire, the, the largest bank in Canada. So these are massive moves. These businesses are bigger than countries. Their revenue lines, their secondary revenue lines are larger than the largest companies in our country. It is an unbelievable, honestly, it's a feat to see what they're doing. Like I, I asked Cam before this podcast started what he thought Azure, which is the cloud business for Microsoft, is going to do in revenue this, this year. And he was not very close, but... When I mentioned to him that they were going to do roughly $83, $84 billion in revenue, it's just, I don't think people can fathom the, how insane that is. When you are operating a, a regular size business in, in Canada, and let's say you, have a, you work for a 500 employee business, and that business is doing like $125 million in revenue or $200 million in revenue, that's pretty darn good. Like that's like, holy crap, pretty, pretty good. And they do that in a morning. It's just unbelievable with just one piece of their business. That's not even the whole darn thing. I mean, Amazon year over year is going to do next almost $700 billion in revenue. It's just unbelievable the numbers that these, these companies are doing. And Cam mentioned this before, and he asked, is this a problem? 
And I kind of want to throw that back at you. Do you see this as being an issue? Is it an issue that 10, 20 companies are the only things that matter right now? You know what? Like I have thought about it before, like in the context of either investing or just like society, our North American industry economy side of things. And I feel like it's easy to say yes, but there's like, I think from an investing perspective, I think you you had made the point talking about how this is why index funds are around and like picking funds is not exactly like if you're going to say, here's 500, pick your best 50. And if you were to ask me that and I was going to say, okay, look, I'm going to pick these, pick the seven today because they're never going to go away. We don't know what the, like the seven that would have been driving it. And you, I think you talked about it on a podcast actually in the last few months talking about like, what were these seven in 1995 and what were these seven in 2005 that were like real drivers? Like maybe there was more breadth at that time, but still like there was big behemoth companies that would have been driving things at the bottom line. So I think it's easy to say that it is a problem from an investing perspective, because I think you can see, as you pointed out, like the essential, the negative growth on the 492 or 493 or this essentially the stagnation of growth at that point. But I think that might be more of a, that might be more of a reflection of where we're just at globally right now. And I think the, like the big drivers these, these tech companies are more outliers because they're able to operate and be able to be more agile than the other 492 or 493. But mm-hmm. from a business sense, I don't know if it's like, sure, there's like they're taking up a lot of oxygen, but they also provide a lot of like they're the subsects of what they do and the service providers to these big companies provide such a like there's still a huge, like huge piece of the pie to be taken by small businesses and ancillary businesses that are part of this this huge cog in the wheel. So I don't necessarily think that it's the worst thing in the world because I think there's a lot of opportunity that comes out of it. People just don't have to see like, you know, Amazon is, some people say like Amazon is, you know, the, the ruiner of small business, whereas obviously there's been a lot of small businesses that would attribute all of their success to the fact that they can use the services of Amazon or the platforms that are, rolled out by Twitter, Meta or whatever, YouTube, et cetera, that to to grow their businesses. So I think it's it's kind of maybe depending on where you sit on the on the fence and what kind of business you're running, you probably have a different answer. But I think they've they've been able to grow the economy at the same time as like gobbling up so much oxygen. So and I think that this is the first good all in podcast they've had in about three months. But and that's probably not true. It's probably the last six. But Chamath had a interesting comment that I think was right. I think he he absolutely nails this part where he 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 mentions that the big five, the big six, the big seven companies, the Fang businesses that we were just mentioning, they are becoming or moving from being fast growing super businesses to now being single digit slightly outpacing GDP growth cash flow machines. And him and the the other guests or contributors were mentioning that they feel like there's now finally a a change. And I tend to agree with this. And and the change being that 
they've they've shifted from being from being growth stocks to now being blue chip. They've always been blue chip, but now they're they're more cash flow generative. They're going to be they're going to pay back shareholders. They're going to focus on on being fiscally conservative. They're no longer going to be pushing the pace because they're not allowed to acquire other companies. I mean, that's largely how Facebook has done or been able to grow. They're not allowed to be as aggressive and as competitive as they were in the past because our our especially in the United States, they're blocking these things and probably for the for for the right reasons. So now when you are considering or you're looking at your portfolio and you're like, okay, these businesses have been largely the biggest contributor to why my index fund's done so well. And on a go forward next 20 years, if I'm not going to be investing in the index, where am I going to be looking for that return? Well, it's pretty safe to assume that you're not likely going to get those growth returns that you have since 2010 in the five big tech companies. And I'm not saying that that starts today or Mm -hmm. in six months. I'm suggesting that if we are looking at a new decade, which I actually think is fairly safe to say that we are finally seeing that that innovation that we've been kind of craving for the last half a decade. If that's the case, where are we going to find it? Well, it's I mean, in hindsight, it's obvious, like the, the businesses that did so well, you have, I mean, Google search in 0405, you have. Apple with the iPhone and when was that? 08, I don't even remember. 07. Then you have, I don't know, Microsoft, which has been around since the 80s, but more, more recently with their cloud business and and their ability to, to shift from being a, a single software seller to being more of a huge, massive suite that you pay for on a month-to-month or annual basis. All of these business changes and integration of new software tools Salesforce with with the way it integrates into businesses, all of these web two businesses. And as we shift to this new world where you have an AI that is able to generate new efficiencies that never thought or we never thought about before that 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 unlock things that someone like myself who isn't able to code can now learn or perhaps leverage these new tools to now create things or be something that I wasn't able to attain in the past. I think that that is interesting. And if you're an investor, you shouldn't be looking at necessarily those five or six or seven companies to monetize those things. While it's quite obvious that Microsoft owns the the biggest player in the space right now with regards to open AI, or at least they have the most exposure to it. In the fact that it's run on Azure, it's they've sold their equity to, to Microsoft, their success is a massive benefit to Microsoft equity holders. While that's all true, I think that anyone who's going to be looking to find fast growth movers in that technology space, you'd be... History suggests that it's unlikely to be one of the five businesses that were dominating the S&P 500. And if we just go back, I could probably go up and pull up all that data and, and show you that if you were to look at the Dow 30 of 1990 and then look at it today it has changed quite a bit and the leaders from a the top 20 largest companies on earth in 1990 to today i mean exxon mobile used to be at the top right i mean apple was nowhere to be found microsoft has stuck around but it still wasn't at that wasn't at the top right so it has a that 
that roster is constantly changing and it's likely going to be changing in 2030 and it's likely going to be changing in 2040. So with that in mind, I just think it's important to exercise that. And for myself, I'm super optimistic about healthcare. I just think that that is the, the number one space to be looking right now. It's sadly very incredibly complicated and difficult to, to really get like into the nitty gritty. I mean, God, I was listening to Freeberg talk about the, the genetics of, of meat for like 20 minutes. I'm like, man, this guy's for <laughs> sure autistic for sure. And like, and I mean that in, in a, in a way in that not insulting this guy, he's just clearly incredibly brilliant. And, and, well, and to be able to focus on details like that, right? Like that's the kind of stuff that makes him a good investor. So special, right? Like he's yeah. just clearly special in, in such a, a unique way. But at the same time, I'm, of the opinion that if you're looking at waves, future trends, every podcast from every person who's influential, at least male influencer, is focused on longevity medicine now. It's everywhere. Everyone is talking about it. All the new books, every podcast, doesn't matter where you look. And now when I talk to my clients or my, my parents, their friends, and or you're sitting around having a having a beer with with guys after golf. What is everyone talking about? It's cold plunge, cold, cold plunges, <laughs> saunas. They're getting Botox in their face. Their parents are are thinking about how they can live longer. I just listened to this podcast where this financial advisor runs a three hundred billion dollar business, and he just talked about longevity for the last twenty five minutes because he thinks that retirees are so screwed people that are if you are alive in 2030 you're going to live to 120 that's effectively his his mental model for everybody and i'm i'm comfortable in saying that if that's the truth and we got seven more years and if you're alive in seven years and you're going to live to 120 99.9 percent .9 of financial advisors have been giving people bad advice actually a hundred percent of them have been and I would argue that everyone would have rejected anybody making a model for 120 anyways and yep. would have said, like, most of my clients tend to say, I expected to die at 75. Mm -hmm. Right? Like my dad did. And, and how much um, of that do you think will be, like, not that it won't be a big number still, for sure, but how much of that will be generated by choice, like lifestyle choices, where it's like you're doing these things that are potential, like, I mean... I don't know if taking a cold plunge every day is going to extend my life, but there's like all these things, all these things that people are making a choice to go spend money on to achieve longevity versus medical advancements that are going to keep them alive based off of the healthcare system that will be available to them either publicly or privately. So I have this chat with my healthcare family a lot where they have actual qualifications. And then I'm on the other side <laughs> where I'm like, I've read a few books and I'm obviously right and they're wrong. So I, I always, I'm asking them questions being, and, and ex they're like, Joel, you're ridiculous. Why are you doing this? I mean, I'll have 12 drinks in a week, but I'll also try to cold plunge and do saunas. <laughs> like, and my wife's father's like, you're Joel, you're an idiot. What are you doing like that? You're making there's no impact there. So I'm of the opinion that um, forward looking medicine is going to be what changes everything. 
And we had, I, I finally hit home with something with Adriana and, and her family where I said, medicine is solving for 20% of, or doctors learn about 20% of the problem. They are reactionary medicine because that has been the only place to solve problems. There was no forward looking medicine that were, and there's not a lot of education around that either. Anything that occurs in that space is usually done after med school. And that just is, makes all the sense in the world, right? They're, they're, they're fixing problems as they happen. When you break your leg, they fix it. You get cancer, they fix it. You get, you have asthma. Now they have something to solve it from that. There's nothing that delays those things happening, or at least we don't practice that at all. And that's finally starting to occur. And Peter Atia talks about this being like this 80-20 rule where 80% of medicine in his mind, this medicine 4.0 is what he's been mentioning, is going to be preventative medicine. And it's just you doing these new things. And I'm sure it'll involve drugs. It'll in involve diet, involve exercise, all of those things. Mm -hmm. But it's his belief that our knowledge in this space is currently skyrocketing the efficiency and leverage that comes from artificial intelligence and its ability to apply certain specific models to then solve problems and then um, project out research in terms of like how quickly they're able to run certain problems is like at a level in which we've never even been able to fathom before. It's just billions of, of exponentially better. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about that, but especially from just a returns perspective, it's just going to be mental how much money people are going to spend in this space. It's, it's going nowhere but up. And that's the part that I'm interested about. It's just where all like we've always spent money on clothes. And I think we've to an extent topped out there. You're watching everyone kind of shift from Nike and now they're spending it on Hermes. Like that's been the big jump up where people are spending more money on an individual item than they might, they, instead of buying multiples of items they're now buying an individual one to replace 10. That part seems to be saturated or whatever. I'm not that excited. Plateauing. About it. Yeah. yeah. But when you think about as a percentage of wallet share, healthcare is just not, we haven't even, we haven't even thought about it yet. Most people are mad when they have to spend 40 bucks a month at the gym. That 40 bucks is going to 4,000 in some people's cases. <laughs> and it's probably, that's probably not even insane. I, and I mean that. So I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, I read the gene and that made me feel really dumb. And ever since then, I've been listening to the, the drive podcast with Peter T. I listen to like all of these longevity podcasts. And that's all I can see is this being the next. The, the directionally, the arrow of progress for human beings is this. It's just such a, we're so vain. All we care about is our own selves. Why the hell won't that be a focus of ours? Mm -hmm. Especially if it's not too uncomfortable. Yeah. Sounds like you're in an echo chamber to me, but no. I'm just yeah, kidding. probably. <laughs> I think, I, mean, I think you're true. right. I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's going to like most things probably take a bit longer than like, like I think 2030, for for the life expectancy to increase to one twenty at that point, <laughs> I mean, sounds kind of silly to me, but I I think that last comment you made actually maybe might have been kind of a throwaway in terms of your overall synopsis of what you just went through, but the fact that 
people inherently do care about themselves a lot. Like even, you know, the, the best of us who, who give to everybody else, we're still obviously the idea of not being around in the future is not one that people love to hear or think about. And so you're going to take steps to make sure that doesn't happen, that you're around your family and your loved ones and your friends for as long as possible and that you are having quality of life as well, which I think is such a important thing to set yourself up for. I think we, we all know people who are 65, 70, who are seem like they're 50 and we have no people who are 65, 70 that seem like they're 95. So I think anything that you can do to, or if things continue to arise and develop that are, easy things to implement in your life like again like diet exercise it, it takes commitment but those are things that those are offsets of things that we're already doing to begin with and so if there becomes more knowledge and care in that space then then i agree i think it is a trend and i think it is something that will become more of a top of mind item and a wallet spend item for for people in the future all I know is if I see one more of those hug your little boy while you still can things, <laughs> it's just going to make me, it breaks my heart every time. And that just makes, I think our generation is more introspective about how sh fast time goes. Mm -hmm. I think enough people say that for it to resonate. Obviously time still flies. I, I was talking about to somebody earlier today about that and, and, mentioning how I, I haven't done something in a decade and I threw away the word decade like it was nothing. And it's true. It's been a decade and I, it feels like it's been 10 minutes. However, in that same breath, I think that we are, yeah, it's very top of mind more than I, and it's largely because of our standard of living being so high, just as mm -hmm. a, just compared to our parents. And I mention this all the time. I'm like, I used to go out for dinner once a week or once a, once a year for at, to Montana's for my birthday. And I'd wear that dumb hat. Now it feels like every family I know, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in middle class, upper middle class, and the, the market for going out for dinner and the spend, is not the same. Still, the Joe, we have multiple Joeys in our in my our town, versions of that, and it's mm -hmm. a very fast growing part of the economy as well. Something that is outpaced regular GDP growth. And that's because lifestyles have gotten so much better. And, and that personal is, line of credits are higher. Yes. The amount of debt <laughs> that we have. And you know what? That's actually a fantastic transition for me. Let's get off of this. And I do want to talk about something. And this is, I'm going to put, this is a little bit different from the track that I wanted to go on. I'm throwing this ahead. We can talk about Gymshark after this, but I want to, I want to set the table for you, Cam. And then you can actually talk about that uh, principle piece. But I'm going to I'm going to lay this out really quickly. So let's assume you're a dual income in Ontario because I, I love to pick on Ontario. That's where half of our, our our country lives. Each person in the household, both partners make a hundred thousand dollars each. So simple math, that's two hundred thousand dollars a year. Pretty yeah, good. Carry the three. A, I think you're correct. Yeah. Yeah. So my understanding is is that that's a significant that's much higher than the average. And what I want people to think about also first, I'm going to say this prior to as I can before I continue. The majority of household income averages are manipulated by retirement people, people in retirement. Those people have a lower income. 
because they're not working anymore. They're just taking it from their RSPs and from our pension, and that's what their income is. So our, our statistics across that should be exclusive of 50, I should say 65-year-olds and higher, but it's not. So the average income is actually higher than what is suggested. But with all that said, again, two people in a house making $200,000 a year. So the after-tax for each of that $100,000 each is about 73,000 take home. Cam, you can probably do that for me in my head as an Ontario person. Again, higher than what we pay in Alberta, but the the average tax of about 26.88% and a marginal tax rate of 37.9. And that's the Ontario plus the Fed. So combined that's 146,000 take home. Pretty darn good. It's nice to have that split matching income, isn't it? The median income apparently is $60,000 per person in Canada, so about 120000 So assume now that you have a $5,000 mortgage. So I know most people are going to push back on this, but when you start to consider the average home price in Vancouver or Toronto is about $1.2 million, if you reverse engineer that putting 20% down, let's say you have a $900,000 mortgage, you apply a five six percent to that and amortize it over 20, 25 years. Tell me what you got. I promise you, it's higher than five thousand. So now, five thousand bucks. So that's about sixty thousand dollars a year just in mortgage payments. You now start to consider you got to have housing insurance. Those costs are are not going away. So we're talking two thousand twenty two hundred a year. Now you got a car, a lease plus gas. So now we're talking $1.3, a month. And then you throw this all together and we haven't even started to get into food. So let's say just for, for fun's sake, $15,000 a year on food. That's $90,000, Cam. And you haven't even bought clothes yet. You don't even have a kid in daycare. How? The heck can our housing prices stay this high for long? We are in a housing crisis in this country. It's so bad. But it's It's so bad. It doesn't, it's so unaffordable. It doesn't matter. (laughs) The next policy is, is, is going to be 60 year mortgages being approved and by the CMHC. I was just, I just quickly looked up on StatsCan while you were talking there about income levels. So like to put, no, this is as of 2020. So, I mean, I think pretty, pretty good still, but out of the 29 or so million people with income. So this is based off of like reporting, like with tax centers, et cetera. So 29 million people with income, there was only three, just a shade over 3 million people with income over 100,000. 302,000 people with income over 250. Median total income, 40,630. On this specifically. So like just to put like that's cr- like the numbers you just gave are just crazy. And in this, especially like, I mean, you're, you're given the example out of Ontario, which I mean, would also, I would assume you're also giving an example of Metro Toronto in this example GTA. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So 
those are outliers. Mm-hmm. If you're going to look at Toronto and Vancouver specifically, which we've, we've beat that to death, talked about it enough. I think everyone understands that those are two things that are completely outside of maybe what some of our listeners are listed. Like if you're talking about that to Edmonton or Calgary, even or Montreal, et cetera, yeah. Regina, Saskatchewan. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are, the housing market is propped as a national, like from the national standpoint into these two major centers mm-hmm. and the effects or the affordability side of things still trickles down into everything that we're doing. Like we're seeing the same thing here in Alberta in certain cases as well. And especially with some of these, we had talked about the, right before we started recording, how we both have some clients recently who have, and this is more on the, my examples, we're actually both on the corporate side of things, but just looking at how some of these mortgages that were variable rates set up, call it two or three years ago, and obviously at that point, we talked about the in, in the zero interest rate environment, essentially, obviously the, the decision to take on debt and continue to pay debt, even if you did have cash to pay it off, was an easy one because you were more likely to make a return above what you're paying in interest two or threefold by making that decision. And it was an easy one to make. Now, with the increase, especially over the last year, of course, as we've talked about a lot, there has been the steady increase. So, your let's call it your variable rate goes from two and a half percent up to eight and a half percent. There is essentially the the principle. Obviously, I think it's just so, especially with the speed of all these increases, that this out of sight, out of mind. But like, I had a client that paid twenty five thousand dollars of mortgage payments and six hundred dollars of principal over the past year. And so I was like, it was a new client for me. I sat down and I was like, I mean, not, it wasn't really a big topic item, but because they got a bunch of other stuff going on, but I was just like, this is something where you're just like, it's great that the interest is deductible. So like, at least we're, you know, not in a terrible position from a tax perspective on your deductible expenses, but like from a cash flow perspective, they're talking about wanting to have more money to invest and make decisions. And I'm like, well, here's an easy one right here. Either go to the bank and refinance, or yeah. you got a bunch of cash sitting around right now. Bite the bullet, pay this down, and your free cash flow another twenty five thousand bucks going forward. I'm gonna lay up for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm a really smart guy, but it's just like and like there's plenty of exact. We were sharing articles back and forth this week about various people talking about how their amortization rates. Like, I mean, call it three, four months ago, when we were talking about what's the effect going to be with all of these variable rate like thresholds kicking in where essentially the the your payment has now gone past the threshold of having any principal and you're only paying interest on your on your payments. And essentially what's happened in a lot of these cases is the banks have just pushed the amortization period out over the extension of the rest of your your mortgage. So if you're on a call it a five year mortgage that renews in 2025 and 2026, something like that. Well, then they're they're pushing your amortization period out that could have been 30 or 40 years to begin with. And now it's at, they just pick a number, 77, 88, 96, whatever it is to keep your payment the same and to keep some level of, of obviously return for them. And then you paying down some minuscule amount of principal. I think one of the examples was the guy was paying $4 of principal a year. And, he's and so the hope, he owns. and now you're saying, what's the hope and dream here? Like what's the, what's the long game? Well, it's, 
I think when I can't remember who the article was from that you sent, I'm just going to quickly try and find it. But basically the, I think Ron Butler, Ron mortgage guy on Twitter. Yeah. He's a good follow. So he was talking about how I believe it's like 10% of all mortgages or something like that are currently outstanding are coming due in 2023. So pretty small number, but there's a huge, huge glut that are coming due in 25 and 26. And so obviously the hope and dream here for banks is that when the reckoning time comes, that our interest rates are back down to a more reasonable rate where people who are up for refi, there's there's still going to be T-vaults. There's still going to be people who are going to be forced to sell and forced to move. But the number is going to be a lot less because of the outward or the forward looking interest rate projections to be back down into an area where it's more manageable to be on a 25 or a 30 year amortization rate on a new you know, five-year mortgage. So it's very interesting. And I, I don't like it's, it feels to me like it's a, I don't know, bit of a Russian roulette situation, but the, the fact of the matter is like from a, like you said, from an affordability standpoint, especially in some of these bigger markets, it's just, it's, it's in it's, you cannot comprehend how these people are ever going to get ahead. Right. Because at the end of the day, like what you're you're feeding into this dream of having the home and owning the home or being in a certain area, even if you're renting in some of these spots, it's it's impossible to get ahead because of the where the rent rates are at too in some of these big cities. And the like the ability to 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 actually split your wallet spend to a the right degree, like it just it takes so much more to have the I guess the financial restraint. And the financial, like the personal financial plan that goes into it, because it can just speed it out of control so easily. Yeah. And in the number one thing that the number one conversation I'm having with clients is, is really around housing prices. I, I work with predominantly professionals in their 30s and 40s. They're either make, buying their first or second houses. And these people are constantly just asking me for my opinion on, on housing. I mean, there's people that are real estate agents that listen to this podcast that call me on multiple occasions during the week. And they're like, hey, where do you think housing prices are going? And I'm, I don't know. All I know is if housing prices stay at the current price, rents need to go through the roof. Because if these biz- people that own these homes and are renting them out as a business model, go and refi that debt, there's no way that they're in the money anymore mm-hmm. on that rent that you're paying. So if that's the case, the price either comes down or rents go through the roof because the model is flipped up on its head and it doesn't make any sense anymore. The equity is blown if rents can't accept a higher price. So we're going to be in a weird place in 25 if we don't get a cooling of interest rates here. And this is where I'm going to name the episode about like, what, what am I going to call this? The, the slow grind of a housing crisis. And it is, it's going to be this, like this crash that you're, you can foresee for two years. And I think it's going to be a little bit muted. I believe we're going to get financial products that slow this down and make it seem worse or less bad. I think it's very similar to this recession that we're seeing and where we're not getting that. 40% equity destruction in a matter of a month 
where what we're what we're actually going to get is okay the market sold off 22% or 20% the nasdaq was down 30 plus percent at one point it's made ma- a massive return back up we're we're seeing this this convergence of where we thought housing market was going to implode we we believe that the rest of the the market should also follow we have this credit crunch where no one can get new lending so where are they going to spend but they have so much savings we're falling in the middle here and what is probably likely going to occur is no massive crash, kind of a softish landing to an extent. We get new financial products, new innovation. We, we end up supplying the market with new housing that is more affordable. And we end up kind of falling in the middle where maybe we end up at a 3.5% mortgage rate average. We're not going to be able to get that 2% again, that 1.65 that you locked in at, that you're telling everybody about, you're a financial genius. Probably going to have to get closer to that 3 or 3 4% range. But you're going to be able to pull it off. Housing prices might come down 8%, and all's going to be well. But what I am suggesting, though, is that for the next two to three years, housing prices are not going to skyrocket, not without a return to 2% interest rates. And that's just my opinion. There's no rush in real estate, in my opinion, unless you're getting something ultra special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially because I mean, just to like use an example, like for like myself, like I think if I'm looking at market prices of my home, I think right now I could sell and make call it eighty thousand bucks to hundred thousand bucks on the home, just based off of what I like looking at comparables. I few sites that I'm not sure if you ever used Honest Door before. Of course. Online? He's been yeah. a guest on this podcast. Oh, no way. Yeah, Den Belotowski. Well, it shows you that I didn't really listen very much before you know I joined. Really great. <laughs> Our new podcast studio is right next door to Honest Door. There you go. Well, I love their website. I use it all the time at my work for looking at new properties that clients may have purchased or looking at history of, of properties that have been purchased, etc. And so just looking at information like that and other, other comparables, and I, I talked to you about, Hey, like, I mean, I could potentially see myself, you know, moving one more time before kind of settling in and the forever home quote unquote, but there's so many people that would be in a similar situation to me and essentially you too, like when you would have last mortgaged and it's like, well, I have this great rate and like, sure this home across the street, maybe I could pull it off, but do I want to give up this 2.59 or 2, 1.75 or whatever it is that I have? And I, like, maybe I'll just wait until 2025 or maybe I'll wait until this or that. So there's all this like trepidation too, I think with the, the people who were so hot and heavy to sell, call it this time last year or even in 2020 and making those, those jumps. And there was just so much, like as you talked about, like the, you know, the dollar switching hands is the real tell of our economy. Like that's like, there's that trepidation to do that at this point, because we don't know that dollar that I'm grabbing out of the next person's hand is not going to be worth the same as what I just gave up Yeah, because of what's out there from the financing side of things. So yeah. it, it it's a really interesting, I, I know you were talking a bit about that, but just like the, the supply angst that's out there on the market too right now. So that's also what's kind of me propping things up, right? Is the fact that, the, the supply is low and then we're hitting a time of the year now too where there tends to be an influx of demand 
but it's going to be really interesting to see how it all plays out because I think there's there's just the the people who were not forced to sell previously or would have been thinking about selling. So many more people were like, I'm on a five year, but I look at this opportunity that's here. I'm going to do it, you know, one or two years in. I don't care. And now it's going to be a, almost like I have to wait. I can't. I can't imagine giving up what I have right now or having to basically throw my personal budget out the window and have to redo everything in order to get to that next home that, you know, the opportunities here two years earlier, but I can't change everything else in my life in order to make it work. Yeah, no, I, I think you distilled it really well. And uh, it's gonna be really fun to, to broadcast this slow crash of, of housing, <laughs> Alberta less affected, obviously the United States mm-hmm. is going to be super fun. They've, the majority of that country refied at their 30 years at two and a half, three percent And lucky them, they can write off their mortgage interest. So they have a, a real fantastic system down there that really emphasizes flexibility and financing and, and doing fun things with houses. But I know they don't have a history of any, any bad things happening. No, no, they're really good at that. I do know from, from experience that going and talking with people that do what I do down there, a lot of people retire with a lot of mortgage debt because why wouldn't you? You can just write down the, write off the interest and I get it. It's just a tool, right? I, maybe one day that happens here, that party that does some form of, of interest write down is not going to be in a liberal one. You don't say. No. <clears throat> so, and it won't be the NDP either. But if I ever saw a conservative government doing going for that, man, that would be funny. That would be an interesting platform, actually. So do you want to hit up on this Gymshark rings? <laughs> I know that was an exciting piece for you this week. Yeah, I don't know why. I So... People don't know this, but our number one listened to podcast back in the day was actually our deep dive down on 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 Gymshark the business. Mm-hmm. And this was way back 2019 when we first started. But we had, I think, darn near close to 25,000 downloads on that on that one week episode. And that's a lot. I, I had so many people inbound email me thinking that I actually knew the guy <laughs> that owned Gymshark. It was hilarious. So anyways, I've followed the story forever. I actually wear their clothing at the gym because I can afford it. It's actually stuff that feels to me like it's only 25% worse than Lululemon stuff, but for a third of the cost or even less, maybe 20, call it 75% less. And I think that the business itself is really cool. I think the branding, the story about how they got to where they are today, the their interesting equity share is is really neat to see. But what was most shocking or maybe even just instructional for anyone starting a direct-to-consumer brand was just how challenging it can be when you have the cost of your goods go up, the customer acquisition costs maintain the their their same price or just get slightly more expensive while not being able to pass on those prices to your, to your customers and not being able to price or pass on your, your goods inflation or the cost of Mm -hmm. goods inflation to your customers can be incredibly detrimental. And that is what a moat is. When you have such a product that you can increase the price because other people increase the prices to make those goods, that's a business that's good. 
that's in a business that is not competitive. Peter Thiel coined the term that competition is for losers. <laughs> and when you're a business, you want no competition because you can increase prices. Gymshark has a lot. You don't have to spend much time on Instagram to realize that every good looking person you know has a clothing brand. And that just produces a crap load of, of competition and it increases your customer acquisition costs. And unfortunately, during hot inflationary environments, it destroys your profitability. And wow, has that ever happened to a brand that while it's still growing, still selling more on a year over year basis, their profit margins have been decimated. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah, just it's very, it's very similar balance sheet. Like I so saw this 21% year over year growth in, in revenue, but a 5% cut in gross margins, 2% increase in distribution costs. 6% decrease in operating margin, 6 or 5% decrease in earnings before tax margin. So that's what the little snippet that we that we were reviewing from was it Drew Fallon 12 at, on on Twitter. So thanks for the summary Drew, but the the takeaway here is actually th this is a this is a income statement and a balance sheet that looks very very similar to what I'm seeing even with small businesses here in Alberta. So it's Increased activity, you got this jump. A lot of a lot of businesses saw this jump, but the ability for them to pass, like as you put it, the, the ability to pass on the increased cost to their customers, even with the volume increase and demand increase, it was so hard to keep up with that. And that was kind of almost like an 18 month swing, if you're calling like December year end, like the last 18 months, so hard to keep up with in order to to rejig your costs. You're you're talking to a client one day about you know, costing and pricing. And then if you have any lead time whatsoever between the time of you making that sale and you requiring acquiring the products in which to sell that, literally days or hours were making the difference in a one, two percent change in your in your profit margins. It's insane. So like I think a company at this scale, same issues apply, it's just at a greater scale. So the fact like that the the fact of pass on the distribution costs, pass on the, the cost of sales, while also, like you said, being in an ultra competitive market where you cannot just say, we got to increase everything by 10%. Well, then you've lost that customer. The loyalty in this space would be next to nothing. I mean, you're going to have some people like brand ambassadors, et cetera, that are going to be pushing your stuff too, from an, you know content creator standpoint, et cetera, which is great. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, there's 40 billion other options for me to buy these leggings that I want or these, this, you know, shorts or shirt or whatever it might be. So if Gymshark is going to cost, or it, I, the only reason I was using Gymshark to begin with was because it was 15% less than the other thing that I was looking at. And now there's five more that are 15% less than Gymshark. And so if I just take those seconds to look around and find that, it's really tough. So I mean, the, the fact that the revenue growth is there is is good. The one thing that I looked at that was promising or probably something that they were at least being agile with was their administrative costs. So they kind of actually decreased that by 1% year over year. That's probably an indication that they laid off some staff and, and cut some items that were being overspent on the G&A side, which obviously was a trend across the board. So probably that number- protein powder. <laughs> that number probably actually needs to go lower for them because yeah. I think at the end of the day, their, their focus for a lot of companies needs to be on bottom line is there's not going to be, especially in an ultra competitive market, there's going to be less control over the gross margins. 
and more so about the cost that you can control, which is what are you spending on everything else? So GNA and whatnot. Yeah. Take, take the Elon approach and cut 98% of everything. Fire everybody. And then, then be like, okay, it seems like we needed some of you. So (laughs) 10% of you come back. And then all the ones I made fun of come back. Yeah. Everyone who I insulted personally, please come back. And you have now have a chip on your shoulder. Yeah, yeah you're gonna way. work harder than the next guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's the way it is. And that actually moves into my recommendation for the week. Mm. Elon on on Bill Maher. That was gonna be mine. No, we didn't even talk about this. I was just finishing listening to it before uh, before we started recording. Okay. Well, my father-in-law, who mm-hmm. has been a Elon lover to hater, to now respects him and loves him again. Just by watching the interview. Yeah, he's like, you know what? Sometimes I find myself trapped in the CNN echo chamber where they just mm-hmm. choose to make you hate him because you don't, they don't like that he's attacked some of their, their journalists on Twitter. And I think journalists in general all hate him because he's been, to an extent, sta- taking away their largest platform, the one where they have the most identity and the most impact. And they've stripped them of some of their credentials. And I think they're rightfully mad at him in some cases. Mm-hmm. However, I think he's truly doing his best. I think as someone who has been a hater to lover to hater to like the same place where I'm a moderate in the middle about Elon, who I think he's the most important person on our planet at the moment, but still a dick <laughs> and someone who will steal from you in order to what he deems to be the greater good, make make moves on what he thinks to be the greater good. If he's not busy screwing with me, I like watching it, you know? So, yeah, that's my reco. I got a couple others if you want to. I was going to say, it was a great, like, yeah, great interview. I love Bill. Like, I mean, again, kind of one of those people that you can love and hate depending on the interview and on the episode or whatever. But honestly, like, I think it's, it's just raw most of the time. Like, I always get the sense that he's – he is who he is. There's no, like there's production for sure, but like he, he is one of those people who is who he is. Like it's, you're getting an unfiltered or you're getting his true views and his true, his true questions or what he would ask. So I think it's, it was good. He's, he's always interviewed well though, Elon, like in my opinion, at least in the last few years, like I think he's, he's come off very well in person and he's completely different. Like most people in this world who are a bit different than what they are on their Twitter profile, especially when they're anonymous eggs. So, but him, yeah, it, it was just a really, it's like 25 minutes long or something like that. And this is really, really, really good listen. So I, I definitely, that was my, I finished watching. And I was like, this is going to be a good recommendation. And then boom, Joel steals it. I'm always, I'm always early to these things for you. My <laughs> other one will be Kevin Kelly. He was on the Liberty RPF podcast and I really enjoyed it. He has this, this quote and, he says, when copies are free, you need to sell things that cannot be copied. Well, what can't be copied? Trust, for instance. And I think that that quote is important for anyone looking into whether or not AI is going to eat their career. Even myself, I'm still always worried. And do things that can't be copied. Get closer to human beings. He has a great hour-long podcast, 45 minutes, 46 minutes where he discusses that, how to be durable in the face of, of technological innovation. And it was a good, very good listen for me. Enjoyed it. 
So that's for me. That's it. It's the end of the week, man. We're going to be right, at buddy. a real studio next week. So that should be fun. Yeah, pretty crazy. Up in our game. Mm-hmm. Won't Anyways. be worried about mics not working and uh, yeah, not files not it. uploading. Yeah, middle of 2 a.m. No, nah, it should be good. I'm excited. <laughs> you can drop your role as editor. Yeah, man, that's actually the <laughs> only thing I care about right now. <laughs> It'll be really good. Okay, off to round two for our it's... beloved Oilers. We're into summer. Tax deadline tomorrow. I got no more personal tax to file. I'm off. Can't wait. Talk to you next Sunday, buddy.